0: We are in the second week of our series called Practices. And in it, we're exploring how our faith is not just a set of intellectual ideas, but a way of life, a practice. And our conviction is that every healthy spiritual practice or spiritual discipline helps us stay connected to Jesus for the sake of others. A healthy practice achieves both aims. And last week, we looked at how the practice of dwelling in Christ, or what some people call abiding in Christ, is one of those primary ways in which we stay connected to Jesus for the sake of the world. And this week, we're going to look at the practice of the table. The table. I mean, have you ever wondered why we have a table front and center on our stage? And throughout the service, you have to look at it for most of the service. And part of the reason is it says something. This table says something about who we believe God is. It says something about how we believe God is at work in the world. And as we draw near to this table week after week after week, it says something about who we believe we are and how we believe we should relate to one another. But if we're honest, this practice of the table is a rather strange one. In John's gospel, when Jesus says, very truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise them up on the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. After hearing this, John reports that... Many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Apparently, telling people to eat your body and drink your blood is not a great strategy for church growth. (laughs) After all, if you remember the context, Jews are kosher-keeping, table-practicing people. They don't eat blood in steak, let alone entertain the idea of drinking a human's blood. It was all too much, and so they left. And and as the Christian movement began, they, they began this practice that we call communion, and it's where we eat bread and wine, where we partake of the body and the blood of Jesus. And this has gone on throughout church history, and very early in history, in the second century, we can read critics of the Christian movement who accused Christians of cannibalism. So maybe you're here and you're wondering, Why do Christians gather around this table to eat Christ's body and to drink Christ's blood? What is that all about? Or maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you're still asking, why do we do this? This morning, I want to explore how central the practice of the table is for us as followers of Jesus. As Jesus said in John's gospel, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. So this is another key practice for dwelling in Christ, for abiding in Christ. And this practice is a very tangible, embodied, and yet mysterious way of attaching ourselves to Jesus and remaining connected to Jesus. And while the table refers mostly to the practice of communion, it also refers to the table habits Jesus expressed while he was doing ministry here on earth. And the table of communion... It's it's designed in such a way by the Lord to shape the way that we host our own tables. And so here's the idea I want to explore this morning. When we are guests at the table of Jesus, it changes every other table. When we're guests at the table of Jesus, it changes every other table. So before we can consider the table practice of communion, let's look at some of these table habits of Jesus. I know we read from Matthew this morning, but we're going to go elsewhere. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 34. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one of our great Bibles. Take it home with you. It's yours. Everything's also on the screen behind me. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. If you wanted to find Jesus while he was making tracks through ancient Palestine, your best bet would be to try to search the tables in your neighborhood. You're gonna find Jesus at a table. And the table habits of Jesus, we see, gave him quite the reputation. His critics called him a glutton you know, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and suddenly we're all a lot more excited about following him. And yet, on the heels of this very critique, it's interesting, one of the people offering the critiques goes on to invite him over for a public meal. A Pharisee, a rule-keeping religious elite, critiques Jesus and then says, Come over for this public dinner. And Jesus goes. And the elite, they would eat at this banquet table and commoners could gather around and watch them share a meal. But Jesus' reputation had a way of following him around. And at the table, a woman of the city, a.k.a. a prostitute, came to the table and washes Jesus' feet In the most scandalous way, she lets down her hair. Women in the ancient world were always supposed to keep their hair up and hidden. She lets down her hair and washes Jesus' feet at the table of a Pharisee. It's scandalous. But the shock of these sort of table manners and these table customs can be lost in us. In the ancient world, dining with people... uh, it involved a lot more than just the practicalities of eating. It wasn't as casual as walking out the door with a new acquaintance or friend and heading out and having to make a decision between like a food truck or Chipotle, and the decision is obvious. Uh, the table was the place where social status was enforced and established. The table was the place where boundaries were enforced. It's how you knew who was in and who was out. The table even had spiritual connotations. The people eating at the table, they were close to God. They were God's people. They were in with God. And those away from the table, they were outcasts. They were sinners. At some level, if we're honest with ourselves, if we take an assessment of our own table habits, we actually understand this more than we realize. We know how an invite or a lack thereof can solidify our circle of friends. Through meals, we can enforce designations between families and friends and acquaintances and strangers. And we control to some degree how people can move through those categories. For example, if you've ever said to a friend, oh no, why did you invite them? I just wanted it to be us you have an idea of what was happening around these ancient tables. This was what was going on. And what we see is that Jesus is completely unconcerned with these table games because he has a better table in mind, a much better table. In Luke's gospel alone, We see that Jesus dines as a guest many times. He dines as a guest at a tax collector's table, not just once, but multiple times. Tax collectors were among the most despised people in that culture. Jesus eats as a guest in the home of not just one Pharisee, but many Pharisees, some of them very hypocritical. Jesus even invites himself over as a guest. That's really comfortable. To Zacchaeus' house of all people, one of the most notoriously crooked tax collectors in all of Jericho. But what's scandalous about our passage here in Luke and what's beautiful at the same time is how Jesus can bring a Pharisee and a prostitute together at one table. He reclines at the table as a guest. But if you read the whole passage, both begin to discern that Jesus might actually be the host. Isn't that interesting? Jesus shows up as the guest. He shows up on people's terms. But if they pay attention to him, if they watch what he does, if they listen to what he says, he starts to redefine everything and the roles change. If Jesus isn't the guest, but the host, then suddenly everyone at the table has to learn how to be a guest on his terms. And in this scandalous moment, Jesus brings together the righteous and the sinner. The Pharisee has to come to terms with the prostitute and the prostitute has to come to terms with the Pharisee. And if we're honest, there is something deeply unnerving about this. People unlike us are welcome at the table. People unlike us are at the table. The Pharisee and the prostitute don't, even, don't just have to learn how to share a meal together. If they want to be a part of the kingdom of God, they actually have to learn how to walk together and share in life together. Because God is not concerned whether you're righteous or a sinner. He's concerned about whether you are centering your life around his son. And if both acknowledge that Jesus is the host, if both acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord, then it's possible somehow for them to gather at a table week after week where social divisions no longer matter, where status like that no longer matters, where the only thing that happens is unity. And as the movement of Christianity unfolded, the scandalous practices of Jesus at the table shaped the practices of the early church The most notable is that Jews and Gentiles started eating together. Not always perfectly, but they started eating together. This was forbidden previously. There was ethnocentric attitudes from the Jews towards Gentiles and Gentiles. Gentiles in history had racist perspectives towards Jews. And all of a sudden, as Jews and Gentiles start following Jesus' ethnocentrism and racism starts to crumble, Slaves and masters started sharing meals together. Social division is being overturned. Men and women started dining together. Gender inequality began to be healed. And this all started to happen because people began recognizing that Jesus is the host of their table. Jesus is the host of their table, St. Paul, reflecting on this, writes, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Let me put that differently so that we hear it with the impact it should have. There's no Canadian or immigrant, no First Nations or colonizers, no activists or pipeliners, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Really? I mean, really. If this is possible, it can't just be some sort of radical humanism or an effort to establish multiculturalism. This is nothing short of a new humanity. And it's all a glimpse, just a glimpse, a picture into what Jesus accomplishes around his own table and what the kingdom of God will be like when it's finally established on earth. This is the way of life under a new king, a multi-ethnic, multi-generational table of unity, a place where our personal experiences and backgrounds still matter, but they are no longer the most important thing because they aren't ultimately what defines us. What ultimately defines us is our allegiance to God. Jesus. Now, this sounds beautiful in theory, doesn't it? No one is going to put a big X beside this, not interested, but it is immensely difficult in practice. How is it even possible? This is only possible once you're a guest at Jesus's table. Once you're a guest at his table, this becomes possible. So before we can practice table habits that look like Jesus. We have to find our place at his table first. We have to find ourselves as guests at the table Jesus has set for us. There's two significant moments in the Gospels where Jesus is the host of a meal. The first is the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and the second is when he institutes the Lord's Supper or communion at a Passover meal or uh, what we commonly call the Eucharistic meal. These are the two times we see Jesus as a host explicitly. In Luke's account, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, we're told this, and pay attention. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. And then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. And at the last supper, when Jesus institutes the sacrament of communion, the same patterns repeated. Jesus... Took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them. When Jesus hosts a meal, when he sets a table for his guests, he repeats the same pattern. Jesus takes and he blesses and he breaks and he gives. And at the Last Supper, Jesus repeated this pattern with bread and wine, and then he said to his apostles, Do this in remembrance of me. Keep on doing it. And ever since, in many different ways, Christians have continued this mysterious practice of bread and wine, body and blood. And as I said earlier, this is where many people hit the eject button because this is such an unusual practice. So let me ask, what compels some people like many of us here to draw near week after week to eat Christ's body and drink his blood? In John's gospel, when many of Christ's followers and early disciples leave him because of this teaching. Jesus turns to his closest followers and almost in an act of vulnerability, I think. He says, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, my favorite verse in the whole Bible, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we've believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We come to this table because there is a deep conviction and sense that there's nowhere else we can go. There's nowhere else we can go to find life, let alone the abundant life Jesus shows us, let alone eternal life. We come to this table because we've come to see and believe that Jesus truly is the Holy One of God. He's not just the Holy One of God. He is God himself in human person. And so we come to this table because this is the table that God has set for us. But we also come to this table, as St. Paul says, because as we do, you proclaim Christ's death until he comes. So this table is not so much about bread and wine as much as it is about the sacrifice Christ made for us. At this table, we proclaim Christ crucified. At this table, we proclaim that Jesus gave his body and shed his blood to forgive our sins and establish a new relationship with God for us. The slate is wiped clean forever. And at this table, we remember all of this, not out of a morbid obsession with death or suffering, but because we know this sacrifice is the most profound demonstration of God's love for us. This is the extent to which the Lord of the universe is willing to go to reconcile his children to himself and welcome them back into his home and his kingdom. And this table reminds us God wants to share a meal with us. God desires each and every single person in this room to be a guest at his table. And more than that, God wants to share his very life with you. Do you feel how astonishing that is? That week after week, you can draw near to a table and in a very tangible and real way, dine with the God of the universe. But we have to recognize, this is a table of undeserving friends. This is a table of undeserving friends. Nobody deserves a seat. Nobody can earn a seat. No one can buy a seat. No one is ever worthy enough for a seat. This simple meal, which is more extravagant than any banquet feast on earth, is offered freely to everyone without cost. It's a gift, and that's why we call it grace. And so it doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious, a sinner or a saint. What matters is whether you come forward and receive the bread and the wine without price. And if you come forward in faith, you're saying yes saying yes to everything Jesus accomplished on the cross. Yes, I believe Christ was crucified. Yes, I believe that the only way our sins can be forgiven is through his shed blood. Yes, I believe only Jesus can reconcile us to the Father. Yes, I believe that Jesus will establish his eternal kingdom. But why do we prioritize the weekly practice of coming to this table? Why not once a month or once a year or every uh, third moon. Toward the end of Luke's gospel, we read about two disciples who unknowingly journey with the resurrected Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And they urge this mysterious guest to come over for dinner. And Luke writes, when he was at the table, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened And they recognized him. Jesus takes and he gives thanks and he breaks and he gives. He repeats the pattern and suddenly they see him for who he truly is. And so we come to this table week after week because this practice can open our eyes. It can open our minds. It can open our hearts. It can open our lives to see the present risenness of Christ, that he is alive and he is with us and he is present. The best-selling poet and essayist, essayist, essayist? something like that. Kathleen Norris, not married to Chuck Norris, Kathleen Norris recalls one of her first spiritual awakenings. She was invited to a Catholic wedding and was astonished when the priest began to clean up the dishes after serving communion and this is what she writes about that experience. I still find it all remarkable. That in that big fancy church after all the dress up and the formalities of the wedding mass homage was being paid to the lowly truth that we human beings must wash the dishes after we eat and drink. The chalice, which had held the very blood of Christ, was no exception. And I found it enormously comforting to see the priest as a kind of daft housewife overdressed for the kitchen, in bulky robes, puttering about the altar, washing up having served so great a meal to so many people. It welcomed me a stranger Someone who did not know the responses of the mass. After the experience of a liturgy that had left me feeling disoriented, eating and drinking were something I could understand. That and the housework. I love this. This is a modern day example of Jesus revealing himself at the table. Like Kathleen Norris and like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, we too can encounter Jesus at the table in a very real way. Several years ago, I was at a Good Friday service, and as I was preparing to approach the table, as I always do when I worship the Lord, something changed. I can't explain it. My eyes were, were opened in a sense, and it was as if I was drawing toward the Mount of Calvary itself. And yet it was in the present. And it was so unnervingly real that I've never forgotten and it still nourishes me when I recall it. These sort of things can happen at the table. Mysteries like this happen once in a while, but even if they don't, even if we never get to experience this, what matters most is practicing our faith. Week after week in faith, we come forward and we receive Jesus trusting that obeying his simple command to do this in remembrance of me Is enough. And it is. But here's the challenging part. If we're going to partake in this meal, if we're going to drink the wine, if we're going to eat the bread, we are uniting ourselves with every other person that comes forward, too. We are united with people quite unlike ourselves. If we're going to be guests at this table, then our roles change. The friends and acquaintances and strangers who share this meal with us, they are now our brothers and sisters. And as we draw near to this table, we're committing to walking in the ways of Jesus together. And as we draw near, we have to examine our hearts. We have to look around the room and ask ourselves are we reconciled? Are we reconciled to one another? Is there anyone we need to forgive? Is there anyone here from whom we must ask forgiveness? Are there any sins yet to be confessed? We examine ourselves so we can be unified by the power of Christ's spirit. But this table, it is not for the perfect. Don't let any flaws you see in your self-examination stop you from drawing forward. This table is not for people who have it all worked out. This table is not for those who have it all put together. This table is for those who are struggling, who are wrestling, and who are even failing. This table is for all who desire to see Jesus change us in the way we relate to one another. This table is for everyone who recognizes that we cannot walk in the ways of Jesus without his ever-present help and strength. And so we draw near. Because we need Jesus to sustain us. We need him to nourish us. And so we draw near because at this table, by the power of his spirit, he shares his life with us. He fills us. He strengthens us. But we also have to remember that a healthy practice is not just for ourselves. Yes, a practice connects us or attaches us to Jesus, but it is also for the sake of the world. So how does the table practice of communion shape us for the sake of the world? It seems like a bit of a gap there. When we're guests at this table, it changes every other table. And there's three tables that it impacts, so I just want to touch on each quickly. Community group tables, your table, and the tables when you're a guest. Our community groups, if you're unfamiliar with them, meet once a week throughout Metro Vancouver and each week ideally the meal is central. Up to an hour of your two hours is simply eating together. And the table practice of communion teaches us that there's always room for one more guest and that's why our groups are never closed. There's always room for people like us and people unlike us. And that means there's always room for discomfort. It's not always easy. It requires commitment. It requires Practice and it often involves conflicts and mistakes, but all of these are opportunities for grace because Jesus is the true host of these tables and we're learning how to be his guests. We're learning how to tend to his spirit who's with us. We're learning how to live out his ways together. So yes, sometimes it's messy, but he's with us and walking with us through it. And so as guests at his table, we are learning how to be brothers and sisters. And that's why we pray over our meals. Jesus, thank you for being the God who dines with us. Help us to be present to your presence. My own community group is one of the most eclectic groups of people I've ever known. We're multi-ethnic and multi-generational. We range from our early twenties, 20s, 20s, 20s <laughs> into our 60s. And an even span. There's students and retirees. There's been followers of Jesus alongside people who are exploring faith, alongside people who just want community. There are married people and engaged people, divorced people and single people. One member of our group was involved in an actual revolution. Another has decades of sobriety under their belt. A high leader of the BC conservatives, yes, they exist, sits gladly with liberals and NDPs. (laughs) And several of us openly struggle with mental health issues. You see, I could go on and on about our differences and what could divide us and our similarities, what could unify us. But at the end of the day, Jesus is the one who makes it possible for us to gather around the table. And where else on earth are you gonna find a group of people like this gladly sharing in a meal together? You see, it's only possible because Jesus is our host. And he's welcomed us to his table. And our group is far from perfect, but each and every week, Jesus is changing us and forming us so that we become brothers and sisters. And so, all these things that could divide us don't really matter. They're important, but they're not of ultimate importance. And what shocks me is this group really loves each other. They really do. They're not perfect but all of us see that Jesus is the host of our table. So if you're not in a community group or if your commitment to one has waned, I know they're wrapping up for the summer, but I still wanna encourage you to join one or recommit to one. Because this table and what you learn at this table shapes and forms how you engage as a guest at the table of your community group. And if you're just exploring faith, I wanna encourage you to visit a community group. Because sometimes you need to see faith put into practice to see its plausibility and to actually see its power. Because our faith is not just a set of intellectual ideas, it's a way of life. But when we come to this table, when we come to a table at community groups, it changes our own table as well. Each of us has a table. You know, it might be round or square. It might be a a piece of cardboard or it might be a makeshift living room turned dining room in Vancouver. Whatever your table looks like, it's the table where you're the host. And as we follow Jesus, this table forces us to ask one question Lord, who should I welcome to my table this week? Lord, who should I welcome to my table this week? And if we let Him, Jesus starts to expand our horizon. We start finding ourselves willing to take a risk and invite a stranger or an acquaintance to our table. We find ourselves willing to risk discomfort and willing to bring seemingly mismatched people together around our table because we know that Jesus is the true host of our table. But the table habits of Jesus that we learn at this table also change the way we're guests at other people's tables. Especially when we're the guest at a table where the host holds different views and beliefs than us. When we're guests at a restaurant or in someone's home, we still tend to the presence of Jesus and we ask a different question What is Jesus already doing here? Because we never bring Jesus anywhere, he's already present. And when we assume that Jesus is already at work everywhere we go, it takes so much pressure off. So we pray, we show up, we show grace, we show love, we engage in the conversation, and we try to tend to what Jesus is doing in our midst. Because even when we're guests, deep down, deep down, we know Jesus is still the host. Jesus still wants to dine with everyone gathered at that table. And that's what the table practice of communion shapes in us for the sake of the world. Because the table practices of Jesus teach us that Jesus is always the host. He is the Lord of all. His spirit is with us to the ends of the earth and the God of the universe wants to dine with us. He wants more and more people to be a guest at his table and he shares his life with us everywhere and always And we see by Jesus's peculiar table habits that a whole new way of life is possible. A new humanity where divisions melt away and unity is truly possible. So draw near to this table so long as you're willing to have Jesus draw near to yours.